Scripture reading for today and also the text for the sermon is actually verse 16, Jeremiah chapter 6. Uh, Jeremiah will learn a little bit more later. This was a time that Israel and Judah, the southern kingdom, was about ready to go into captivity. Bad time. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths, the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls, or you will find rest for your souls. But, they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. And therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I'm bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they rejected it. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifice is pleasing to me. And therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks, against which they shall stumble, fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend shall perish. The New Covenant reading, 2 Timothy three sixteen to chapter 4 and, and verse 5, it actually begins with Paul telling Minister Timothy, um, uh, from infancy, literally, you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And now the text continues. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The time is coming when people will not endure. Literally, sound teaching is hygienic or health-giving teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Brothers and sisters, aren't you thankful for this? The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you say together, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. Our God, we bless you for that firm foundation that is laid for our faith in your excellent word. And our Lord today, as that word is opened and preached and applied, transform us. Our Lord, you you worked 500 plus years ago in order to bring a transformation that first began with individuals, then churches, and worked itself out into all of society. Our God, that's our need today. So give us a passion for those things that have changed the world and will continue to do that work. We pray in the name of Christ, asking for the Holy Spirit's ministry in us now. We pray in Jesus' magnificent name, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I think you're probably going to want to start at page 5 in your bulletin. There are no perfect times or people in, in the history of a fallen world. That's why if we're going to start removing statues, you might as well remove all of them because of the imperfection that's there. And uh, that's because we are living, not only living in an imperfect world, we're full of imperfections and failings and 
as a result in the world there's a lot of sorrow there's a lot of disappointment a lot of mistakes a lot of things done that shouldn't be done a lot of things not done that should be done you get the picture and the the protestant reformation of the of the 1500s the 16th century is no different uh, these were very imperfect people uh, that were leading a movement, and they did it very imperfectly, and there were a lot of mistakes and a lot of errors. But, 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 with all of its imperfections, the observation of a church historian who said, this is amazing, listening to this, next to the introduction of Christianity, the Protestant Reformation was the greatest event in human history. Wow, that's, that's quite a remarkable statement. And it's very interesting, the, the parallels between the world into which Jesus Christ, who is the great reformer, came, and the world into which the Protestant reformers came. Um, on, on the negative side, it was a, a tr- first century in the early 15th, uh, 16th century, a lot of corruption in both government and, and in the church or in Jesus' day, uh, among among the Jewish leaders at, of that day, tremendous amount of corruption. It, it, it's interesting that that Jesus really rebuked the traditions of the elders, which had supplanted Scripture, and it was exactly the same um, in the 16th century, the 1500s. Tradition had really overruled Scripture in in the Catholic Church, the only real church in, in Western Europe of that day. Um, it, it was. It was also. It was also a time um, in, in, in which in, in which people were. They knew something was missing in their religion. It's why Jesus could could speak of the religious leaders as, as whitewashed tombs, and and the people would say, "Yes, that's exactly what it is." So you had that then, and it was the same thing in the early 1500s, 16th century. People knew something was really amiss with religion. So that's kind of on the negative side of things. Positive side of things. Uh, there was, there was in, the, in the, basically the decades before the birth of Christ, uh, there, there was, a, there was a, a, a desire for a more warm piety, we would put it, a warm religion, getting away from the ceremonialism of, of the Jews. And, and it was exactly the same in the, in the 1500s. Uh, there were what were called the mystics, and they went overboard with things, but they knew there was a relationship with God that they needed to have. Um, there was, in the first century, uh, there, was a, there was an interesting a, a fascination with the old writings, uh, of the Greeks particularly, and the same thing in the early, in the early uh, 1500s. There was a growing fascination with the old classics, among which was the scriptures, I might add. And, and even, I think this is just amazing, God prepared the world for the coming of Christ by roads uh, so that you could connect relatively easily anyway uh, with the entire Roman Empire. And it was in the late 1400s God brought about in his providence the invention of the printing press, which enabled writings to be printed and dispersed like they never had been before. It's fast. It really is interesting to study the parallels in those, in those two times. Anyway, so we come now to 1517. And a monk, an obscure German monk by the name of Martin Luther in a place called Wittenberg in Germany, very exercised over the practice of indulgences in the Roman Catholic Church, selling pieces of paper by which if you paid the price for them, you could get your relatives and your friends off of a few years in purgatory. And and Luther hated this. Luther abominated this. And he thought the church did too, that they didn't understand what was happening. Little did he realize this was promoted by the church to make money. Luther, on October 31st, 1517, nails 95 statements to the church door at Wittenberg. Statements that he asks the church to consider in light of the scriptures. And he thinks this is going to wake a rousing church. But it was a church that didn't want to be roused. It didn't want to be upset. It didn't listen and instead turned on that German monk, Martin Luther, 
but God overturned that in remarkable ways, a wonderful, amazing story, and brought about from the, really from the womb of the Catholic Church what we know of as the Protestant Reformation. And it did was God's instrument, really, to bring about transformation in individuals and society. And then, as, as the centuries have gone on, you have the, the Reformers. You have Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox. You'll hear about some of them tonight. And then a little bit later, particularly in, in England, although there were, there were European versions of this too, uh, you had the Puritans, uh, men like John Owen and John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress fame, and then uh, the great theologians of the church, uh, names you may not be familiar with, Francis Turretin, later the Hodges in our Presbyterian tradition, Benjamin Warfield, uh, J. Gresham Machen, who was the Martin Luther of the 20th century, the man God used for the founding of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, Professor John Murray, uh, Cornelius Van Til, some of their pictures are here in the prayer room. But through that, through these reformers and the reformed tradition, God, God gave a blood transfusion to the body Christian. And that's why this weekend we're going to spend some time dealing with the Protestant Reformation under the title, Old Paths for a New Day. We are, to say the least, in a very much a post Reformation era. So the Sunday school class is dealing with, but we desperately need, desperately need these truths that transform the world. And they'll do it again, but we need to know what they are. Okay, so this morning, this evening, we're going to focus on some of the reformers, Luther and Calvin and Knox. Today, though, I want to, I want to do two things. I want to give you a biblical framework for the Protestant Reformation, and, and then the, the highlight what really were the three the three main old paths, although I'm going to mix the metaphor and call them the three electrical currents of the Protestant Reformation. But within that, I want to highlight one of them. Okay, so, so that's where we're going in the next few minutes that we have. Okay, So you're on page 5. You'll be looking at Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16 and what is really, what is really a part of the Here We Stand series that we're in now. Uh, there's a writer uh, that wrote a book called the, the, the Courage to be Protestant. And that's what I want us to have, the courage to be what Protestants are supposed to be. All right, that's enough for introduction. Let me give you a biblical framework for the Protestant Reformation. Jeremiah, called the Weeping Prophet, Jeremiah wrote uh, over a series of years um, beginning, and, and, and these are interspersed in his prophecy of you know, Jeremiah and then following Lamentations, the southern kingdom Judah is about to be judged. And you know from this text, the reason is they weren't going to listen to the word of God. And uh, they're going to be judged. And then they are judged. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah is speaking to the, the Jews who are in captivity in Babylon, the, the very, very um, dangerous nation. of Bal they're, they're in captivity in Babylon and, uh, and, and he tells them basically how they need to reform their lives. So that's kind of the picture of Jeremiah and what's here. And the Reformation, very similar. There was even a language called the Babylonian captivity of the church of, of the 1400s. Um, and it was, it was a church that was given over to its own corruptions. And there was captivity in various ways. Uh, but the Lord, the Lord will use this message uh, to bring about change and in our day, and brothers and sisters, um, this is a nation that is very much under judgment. And don't look at all the specific sins and say, well, you know, is God going to judge that? Those are the effects of the judgment. God gives a people up. And that's what you're seeing. That's why we need these truths, because as the Lord uh, rescued, rescued Israel and then rescued the church in many ways. He'll do the same today. All right, so, so that's, that's just the background to the text. And, and the text itself is, again, biblical, the biblical framework for old paths for new days. Thus says the Lord. And notice that, that dots the scriptures, especially the Old Testament. God himself is speaking. And he says through the prophet Jeremiah, Stand by the roads and look. That's number one. 
and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, that's number two, and walk in it, that's number three, and find or you will find rest for your souls. Now that's an interesting word for rest. It's not very common in the Old Testament, and there's pretty significant debate about whether the word means rest or to be stirred up, to be stirred to action. And uh, so not wanting to make a mistake on the left or the right, I'm going to say both of these are really in view so you can read this, and, and not only will you find rest for your souls, but really what seems the opposite, you'll be stirred to action in your souls. Okay, And actually both of them are true with what God does in his word. All right, so, so that's the text. What do you do? What do you do when when you're in the midst of a culture or a society under judgment? Number one, consider your path. Notice the language that here, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. And, and, And folks, if you don't do that in the physical realm, you're really quite foolish. You don't just, I hope, go out on a road and say, I'll just take whatever one it is and just hope that I get to where I'm going. That's idiocy. But the text is speaking about our souls. Notice free, and you'll find rest for your souls. If it is idiocy to, in the physical realm, not consider where you're going or where you're traveling, it is idiocy on steroids if you don't consider where your soul is going. Right. So he says, consider your path. That, that, that's the first thing. Stop and think about your path. And in a quotation I'm going to give a little bit later, you'll realize our culture thinks itself too busy to do that. And as a result, big danger with the soul. All right, so, so consider your path. That's number one. Number two, consult antiquity. Ask for the ancient or the old paths where the good way is. Now, that is not simply saying, look at what was done in the past. Look at what was done in the past that brought about good, right? Ask for the old ancient paths where the good way is, but consult antiquity. Now, now for the Jews at this time, they didn't have a New Testament. Christ hadn't come into the world Basically, what Jeremiah is saying is, number one, go back to the promises. And, 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 the, and the, the word of God, particularly the promises that God gives, one of which is judgment if you disobey. But look at the promises, and the response to them is faith. Abraham was the model of that. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And basically what he's saying is the old path is go back to the word of God that had been given to that point, and to faith in that word. Consult antiquity. Our age is said to be characterized by the arrogance of the modern. That means for many people today, unless you can get the information on Facebook, and some are even going to start using Twitter now, it's just not relevant. One person, one of our members was speaking with, a young person, one of our members was speaking with a few weeks ago, started referring to the Bible. And she simply responded, yeah, but the Bible is an old book. Uh... What does that mean? How is that a definitive answer? The Constitution is an old document. It's our standard for a government, it's supposed to be. The Magna Carta is an old document, now over 800 years old. It's the basis for the kind of rights that we have in courts today. What are you saying when you say it's an old book? Nothing. But somehow this is an argument because of the arrogance of the modern. And brothers and sisters, the Bible says, honor your father and your mother. Consider the fact you stand on shoulders, okay? And, and look at the good things that have come from the past. Not all have been good, but look at the good things that have come and consider your path consulting antiquity. And then the third thing, it's not just enough to consult it, walk in it. Faith, folks, not only engages your head, but it engages your hands. 
and it engages your feet. If you really believe that mom says you need to clean your room, what will you do? You will engage not only your mind to say this is what mom said to do, but you'll engage your hands and your feet and you'll clean your room. Okay, So that's what it's saying. Don't just consider the path, but walk in, in that path that's good. And you will find rest or you will be stirred in your souls. And, and I don't want to be simplistic, but you can say that all gospel benefits come down to those two things. You find rest for your soul. We'll give you an example of that in just a moment. There's rest and there's eternal rest. But if the gospel really transforms you, you are stirred to action. And those old paths, if you walk in them, will do both. And you will find, but let's use the language of rest for your souls. Robert Richman, I don't know who he is, but he wrote a fascinating essay called A Culture of Exhaustion. A Culture of Exhaustion. And he wrote, because there's always, see if you don't relate to this, folks, because there's always this readily available technology, and you can get your emails all night long, there's no stopping and celebrating or acknowledging the accomplishment of anything. Instead of feeling pride and recognition, what everyone is instead made to feel is, thank God I can get to the next thing on my list. When I read that, I was deeply convicted because I'm exactly like that, and you all are. Now let me, let me change the words a little bit. Because there's always readily available technology and you get your emails all night long and so many other things, there's no stopping like the Lord's Day, like time for personal devotions, and celebrating the wonderful work God has done and acknowledging what God has done in history and is doing now, the accomplishment of anything, let alone the accomplishment of our redemption. Instead of feeling pride, boasting in God, or recognition, recognizing, God, you do all things well, we displace that by saying, thank God, I can get to the next thing on my list. And to be very blunt, there's going to come a point until Jesus comes back, the next thing isn't on your list. In fact, it might not be in your list just as you're going to the next thing on your list. The next thing is God separates your soul from your body and you're dead. And it's scary to think of what it's like if this exhaustion has been your life and you haven't stopped to consider the God that made you and brought redemption. Okay, so I mean, this is how serious the, the, the topic is and why so serious in our culture. Okay, so, so those are the four things that are there. Now, in the second place, let me give you three old paths, okay? Three old paths that literally transform people and, and nations, okay? Begins, always begins with people. Three old paths that transformed nations. And, and or if you want... Three power lines of, of the Reformation, okay? But I'm going to give you number two first, okay? <laughs> it's confusing you with all the points. But the second one of the three old paths is justification. You're declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You look to Christ, you're married to him, everything that is his is yours God in justification declares you not guilty and reckons the perfect righteousness of Christ to you so that the prophet's prophecy, Jehovah, God will be our righteousness, is yours in Christ. That's what captivated Luther, and I don't want to take away Elder Ovinio's thunder for tonight. He's probably going to deal with this. But that was the driving the driving conviction of, of Martin Luther. He ate it, slept it, and drank it after the Lord drew him to Christ because he found rest for his soul. 
If you are on a religious hamster's wheel and you're going faster and faster and faster and faster trying to make yourself acceptable to God by your works, you ain't going to have any rest. But you rest in Christ and you have your rest in him. Okay, so that was the that was a, the second of the of the old paths. The reformers saw that taught in the ain't well, certainly in the New Testament, in much of the ancient church, especially Augustine, and, and they reveled in that. Okay? Now number three, you're wondering what number one is. Number three would really take loads of sermons to deal with. In fact, in many ways, every sermon deals with it. The priesthood of the believer. We are made called God's greeting to us, and our, our, he says, you are made a kingdom of priests. Now, now, what does that mean? In the structure of the, the, Roman, of the Roman church, or the so-called Catholic church, and there was another church, it was the Eastern church, but we're talking about the church that was in, in Europe. And I want to be respectful. You basically are unimportant. You're a calf that's getting milk from the cow, meaning the sacraments. You're getting grace through the sacraments. Roman Catholics believed in salvation by grace, but it, was, it, it accompanied your works, and that, that progressively made you right with God. And, and it was the priests who dispensed that to you. And so the priests and the monks and the nuns, that, that part of the church, that was what was really important because that's where grace came from. Beginning with Luther and with all of the reformers, they abominated that because it's false and dangerous. In Christ, who is the great priest, and he, see, don't say to people you don't need a priest. You do. That priest, though, is Jesus, okay? And, and he's the one to whom you confess your sins, and he's the one to whom you can pour your heart, okay? But, you're a priest as well in Christ, a kingdom of priests in Christ. What does that mean? Well, some of it we're going to cover later. It includes reading the Word of God, learning the Word of God, but praying to God. And, and not only that, but in the church, you are important. The term, the technical term, was the general office of the believer. What does that mean? In every believer, the Holy Spirit works. And we are meant to listen to one another. We call out from the church those who are to lead us. And there's still mutual submission. But it goes beyond that. Whatever your calling is in life, it's important. Not just being a priest, not just being a nun or a monk. John Calvin in Geneva, I love this, because I love sanitation directors. I, I, am, I thank God for sanitation directors, unless you want rats in your neighborhood. I thank the Lord for them. And John, I love to tell them, say, hey, you know, you know where your work began? In Geneva, Switzerland. And they look at you like you're from the planet Mars. Uh, but, but John Calvin, the great reformer in Geneva, said, if you want to have a city that glorifies God, keep the streets clean. Get rid of the garbage. Because he knew that, we all knew that plagues come from that. That's a high and holy calling, to pick up trash and get rid of it. Don't, you don't look up, down on any legitimate calling in life, okay? And, and, and so that's, that's part and parcel of the priesthood of the believer. It's a glorious truth. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. The same heartiness with which you expect a minister, we would say today, to do his work, you do that whatever you call it. Anyway, that was a third old path of the Protestant Reformation, and it did change the world, especially in education. Priests were supposed to be learned people. They always weren't, but they're supposed to be because you're supposed to learn the scriptures. Well, if there's the priesthood of the believers and you're to read the scriptures, what's the big middle part? You've got to know how to read. And so this drove the great educational enterprise of the Reformation. But here's number one. This is the, this is the, this is the main power line of the Reformation, and it's the key to justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. It's the key to the priesthood of the believer. Here it is. Scripture is the Word of God. 
It is sufficient for all matters of faith and life, and it is our final authority. Wow. Sola Scriptura and Tota Scriptura. All, all of the scriptures and all of the scriptures rightly interpreted. Why, what do they mean by that? I and mean, it was a, we'll read you some of the quotations in a bit, but, but there's a kind of a chain to this. Certainly they began with the word, okay? Uh, thus says, you see it in the text before you, thus says the Lord. They've not paid attention to my word. And when we go to the New Testament text, all scripture is breathed out by God, sola scriptura. But the word tells you of Christ. Paul will tell Timothy in the text before it, these scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation, not, not through trying to figure out obscure things about the genealogies, but through faith in Christ, as the Old Testament points you forward to him, you're led to believe in him as you read the Gospels, you're called to believe in him as you read the New Testament. There's all the more reason to believe in him, but, but the point is, it's that you might have faith in Christ, who is what? The Word made flesh. Okay, so the solus Christus, Christ alone. And it is Christ that does lead you to faith, sola fide, and that is worked out in your own individual life. And for the Reformers, too, they emphasize the individual, the priesthood of the believer. The Reformation was about the Reformation of the Church, according to the Word of God. How is the Church to be governed? What is the Church to do? How is it to treat the people the Lord gives it? All of these things were fascinating to the Reformers, and it was, what does the Word of God say for the reformation of the church. These were, this was the driving concern of the Protestant Reformation, as it is in the Scriptures. Look at the New Testament text. Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, to stop you doing what's wrong, for correction, to put you in the right way, for training in righteousness, in the gymnasium of righteousness, that the man of God, beginning with what we would call the minister, it may be complete, equipped for every good work. And he goes on and he says, yes, there, there's, there's going to be a time that people won't endure sound teaching, teaching, teaching that is hygienic, it cleanses your mind, it cleanses your soul, it, it's good for you, is the idea. Rather, people are going to he accumulate, heap up for themselves, teachers to suit their own passions. Sounds like he's looking at the internet age. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth. Whoa, the truth? People can't stand that in our culture. You know, the truth is what God says in his word and wander off into myths. That, that was the driving passion of the Protestant Reformation, number one of the old past, the scriptures rightly interpreted. All of the scriptures, all of the scriptures as they focus on Christ and all of the scriptures governing your life so that you walk in that old way. That, in a sense, you put a frame around that text in Jeremiah and put sola scriptura there and, and you've, got, you've got the driving force, number one, of the Reformation. Now, you may want to take some notes on page 11 because let's, let's apply some of this here, okay? The Protestant reformers and their view of Scripture. I don't want to load you down with quotations, but I want you to, I want you to hear this is, this is not the conviction of some 21st century fundamentalist. This was the driving conviction of all the Protestant reformers. None articulated it better than John Calvin, commenting on 2 Timothy 3.16 on the scriptures. This is a principle, he writes, which distinguishes our religion from all others, that we know that God has spoken to us, and we are fully convinced that the prophets did not speak at their own suggestion, but that, listen, being organs of the Holy Spirit, they only uttered what they had been commissioned from heaven to declare. 
Whoever then wishes to profit in the Scriptures, let him first of all lay down as a settled point that the Law and the Prophets, another term for the Old Testament, are a doctrine delivered according to the will and pleasure of men. But Calvin would use the word dictated by the Holy Spirit. That may not be the best word, but you get the point. The Word of God is the Word of God. And he ends that comment by saying, listen, we owe to Scripture the same reverence which we owe to God because the Scripture has proceeded from him alone and has nothing belonging to man mixed with it. Whoa. I mean, that's a pretty clear statement of what the Reformers believed about the Scriptures. And, and then just some others from assorted writings in, in Calvin. You could get the other Reformers as well, but, but especially from John Calvin. Whenever faith is mentioned, let us remember that it must be joined to the Word. Now, let, let me give you a little illustration. Okay? The, 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 the Soundview Pregnancy Services Banquet was, was wonderful on Thursday night, and we'll, we'll pray for that. I love the initiative of the board and the way they lead things, and, and certainly the cause of the sanctity of human life is wonderful, and the, their main speaker was, was, by and large, a real inspiration. But, at the very end, you got language like this. Maybe the Lord is telling you that you should be someone who writes out a check for $100,000 to Soundview Pregnancy Services. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. The final authority, not of the way you feel at a heightened time of emotion, what does God say in His Word? And there are biblical norms regarding giving. A norm is not maybe the Lord is telling you. Please, folks, don't. Don't fall for that. Again, I appreciated the speaker so much. But that kind of mysticism is, is, is out. Okay, so again, whenever faith is mentioned, let us remember it must be joined to the Word. Again from Calvin, our whole happiness lies in obeying the Word of God. There's no hope of salvation if we don't obey God and His Word. God is not to be separated from His Word. There must be, I love the word he uses, docility. We would say there must be a, a meek, humble submission in order that God's word may obtain credit, authority, and favor among us. It is the foundation of all true religion to depend on the mouth or word of God, and it is also the foundation of our salvation. How is religion to remain pure? Even by depending upon God's mouth, by subjecting ourselves to his word and putting a bridle on ourselves so as not to introduce anything except what he commands and approves. God wishes that reverence which he exacts from us to be given to his own word. That's why, brothers and sisters, ministry. It's not a ministry of the minister's own opinions. What does the word of God say? Is that really what the word of God says? What does it mean? Is that what it really means? And how do I apply it? And is that a legitimate application of that word? That's the work of the ministry. And not for the minister to give you his own opinions. Okay. Now, in friendly conversation, he might say something like, let me take my minister's hat off, give you some of my own opinions about who I want to win the World Series. That's not the word of God. But when it's the ministry of the word, pray tell. It's to be the ministry of the word. Okay, So that's, the, that's just some of that. Now, why is that important? Well, it's not only rest for your soul. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. You lean on Jesus, and there's rest in that. Well, you know, folks... That in Christ, you're more than a conqueror through him who loved you. How can you not have rest for your soul? Okay, so, so, so this brings about rest to your soul. But it also stirs you. The word of God has that way of stirring up in you 
the things that you ought to do, and that must be, must be revived for our very lost day. In other words, again, consider your path. What's the GPS to heaven? A good question to ask people. Well, it, it's, it's pretty much what I think. Really? That's the way you want to die? Living to your own imaginations? Well, there's this religious teacher. Really, that religious teacher's dead, isn't it? Have you ever thought about Jesus, who rose from the dead, who, whose life was the fulfillment of the Scriptures, which means the Scriptures are the Scriptures, the Word of God. And you say, no, no, there's our GPS. That's why Jesus would say, I am the way and the truth and the life. But, but why, why so important for this in our day, standing by the paths, the old path, especially Scriptures? Brothers and sisters, listen to some of the language of our day. And these are from secular writers who are bemoaning these things. Post-factual age. Post-truth culture. Alternative facts. Or as one secular writer put it, a promiscuous devotion to the untrue. I'm not a Christian writing this. A promiscuous devotion to the untrue. By my reckoning, wrote this author, the solid reality based are a minority, maybe one third of us, but almost certainly fewer than half. And Elder Vaith was citing, I'm not getting the statistic, Alan Bloom, who wrote the, the Closing of the American Mind, said that, and this would have been probably back in the 60s or the 70s. What percentage, John? 97% of high school students and then graduates from college, if they go to college, 97% believe all truth is subjective. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's your own opinion. One of the reasons why we're doing the Sunday school class is to deal with the roots of this novelist, Paul King's North. And Paul King's North, again, you're not a Christian, but I know of, he was meditating on a book that was written, it was actually a book that had been, that had been uh, paid for by the French government after World War II, as, as the French were, were wondering, why did they capitulate so easily to Hitler? And this really quite a remarkable book um, basically says, we've lost our roots. Now this would have been the 1940s, folks. We've lost our roots in God and tradition and faith and, and family and all these kinds of things. We're rootless. That, folks, that, that was 80 years ago. And so the writer, Paul, the novelist, Paul Kings North, writes, uh, this is pathetic in the right sense of the word, we want to go home again, home, in this case, to our roots. But even if we knew where home is to be found, we see that we can't return. And so a void is created. And into the void rush monsters, toxic imitators of our lost roots. Wow. The way home is the old paths, where the good ways are. Not all of them were good, but where they were. And the big one, you've got to have a GPS, folks. You know how you depend on your GPS? Most of us do. What is your GPS for life? And there's only one that claims final authority, and that's the Holy Scripture. Old and New Testaments with their focus on Christ designed to lead you to the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what the haven, really, if you want the driving conviction of the haven, it's that. Now, now let me ask you some questions as I've asked myself. First thing I'm struck with, and somebody's mentioned this, there's a glaring lack in the sanctuary, Bibles. And uh, we've got to get the funds for them. We're working on that. 
but we need we should have Bibles. It's a statement. I know you have the scripture in your bulletin, but it's important we have those here for people to consult. That's our final authority. But here's some questions. Do you read your Bibles? Do you read them with some kind of a systematic plan, like through the Bible in a year or through the Bible in three years? Are you nourished by your Bible every day as the Scriptures show you something about Jesus? Are you? It's not enough to read your Bible. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have everlasting life, but these are they that speak of me. Remember that quotation? about not taking time, being so distracted, we don't consider great things. The greatest thing is Christ. And you know Him by the Scriptures. You don't want to hear the statistics about how few evangelicals read their Bible on a regular basis. And we're probably part of that statistic. Do you study your Bible? Do you meditate on it? You memorize it. Best way to resist the devil is Jesus. That is to quote Scripture. Do you sing it? This again, just so you know, there's a method to your pastor's madness, and people have commented on the bulletin. A lot of work goes into it, and it does, with good reason. Your pastor wants you to have a tool every week. It's not a substitute for the Bible, but it's a tool to help you in your singing, in your praying in your reading, in your thinking, as well as in your preparing for worship. Okay? Do you make use of that? Or is your pastor wasting his time? Seriously. You, you, you take, that's why you get it usually on Wednesday. You'll find, not because I put it together, but because basically it's the Word of God and, and hymnody that you sing. That will nourish your life. Do you make use of tools like that? to meditate on the Word of God and to sing it, singing the psalms and hymns. Do you pray to its author to understand his book? Well, I can't understand the Bible. Well, the author is God by the Holy Spirit. Ask him to give you good understanding according to his word. The scriptures even say, give me, give me good understanding according to your word, the psalmist says. So rather than say, I don't understand it, do you pray to its author that you understand it? Do you work to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ according to his word? That's what the scriptures say we're to do. And he said it's a warfare to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's why the Sunday seminaries class and what we'll be doing in the future, God willing, to make you think about the word of God and how it applies to our culture. Do the scriptures make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ every day? Every day do you let Jesus kiss you with the kisses of his mouth by Holy Scripture? And do you work to bring others under the teaching of the Word of God? Giving literature, giving tracts, Inviting people to worship or saying, and we can have a study, a brief study of something in my home. Or using something like ultimate questions that brings you to the Word of God to answer those questions. Do you do that? You want to know what the Reformation was all about? I'll give it to you in one verse from Psalm 119. The entrance of your Word gives light. And it gives understanding to the simple. That's, that's the key truth of the Protestant Reformation. It changed the world then. And we're going to pray that it do exactly the same thing in our own day. Let me wrap this up with, a, with a, a, another quotation. But This is so good. Um, it, it, it's, it's, a statement, it's a statement about again, a church historian, uh, writing about the Reformers, and he says this, The Reformers were supremely concerned for the salvation of the soul, for the glory of Christ, and for the triumph of the gospel. 
They thought much more of the future world than of the present and made all political, national, and literary interests subordinate and subservient to religion, to the Christian faith. Yet they were not monks, but live men, live people in a live age. And they weren't pessimists, but optimists, people of action as well as of thought, earnest, vigorous, hopeful people, free from selfish motives. That's maybe a little bit of an overstatement. But, but by and large, there's a passion for Christ and his kingdom. And full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, equal to any who had preceded them since the days of the apostles, from the center of religion, of the driving force of, of religion or the faith, they have influenced every department of human life and activity and given a powerful impulse to political and civil liberty, to progress in theology, in philosophy, in science, in literature, and I'd add, in the arts. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that the Lord do it again, okay, for his glory and for our everlasting good. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the shoulders on which we stand, many more than we've mentioned in this message. But in the main, those who throbbed with these glorious old paths revive those convictions in our own day. Put, we pray that what are dry bones will not only have flesh put on them, but have life put in them, so that once again we will throb with these old paths in which the good way is. And in so doing, our God, thank you that the Holy Spirit used a word that didn't just mean rest, but also meant a holy activity, because that's our eternity. Make us in this life be people who have our rest in Christ and by him are stirred so that our faith is always at work by love. We pray in the name of the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. Amen. Amen.